Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly. Welcome to Hillsdale College's Classical Education Podcast, bringing you insight into classical education and its unique emphasis on human virtue and moral character, responsible citizenship, content-rich curricula, and teacher-led classrooms. And now your host, Scott Bertram. Thanks for listening. We're joined today by Brad Richardson from Ascent Classical Academy in Douglas County, Colorado. We're talking about teaching epics. Brad, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. What is an epic? Let's get the definition out of the way first. How would an epic differ from other forms of literature? So first, an epic is a kind of story. Uh, You can think of the different kinds of stories as molds, which the poet or the author fills with whatever he or she wants with the content and the material of the story. Uh, The kind provides the structure while the poet provides the content. And epic stories are just what they sort of sound like. They're they're big, (laughs) they're long, they're grand, they're larger than life. There is some disagreement about what actually qualifies as an epic. You might hear stories like Moby Dick or Beowulf thrown into the conversation. Some scholars like C.S. Lewis have tried to distinguish between different types of epics. But in general, I think a helpful way to think about it is to talk about why why epic poems are, are epic or what makes them epic. And I think there's, there's two main ways that, that they're epic. Uh, first, epic poems are epic in scope. Um, they involve heroes with supernatural abilities and often the intervention of gods and demigods. Mm -hmm. They're about monumental wars and and grand journeys. Uh, The scope of the epic is broad. You may have heard the phrase epic sweep Mm -hmm. to describe uh, the scope of epics. Um, And so the supernatural, the mythological, the theological, uh, they're very much at home in the epic tradition. So that's the first uh, criterion. Second, epics are epic in quality or style. Um, Epics are written in what's often called high style, high language used to denote high things. and some of the stylistic qualities of an epic include poetic meter, although that's often lost in English translations, and then stylistic dimensions like epic similes, epithets, catalogs, invocations to muses. Um, epics often begin in medias res, which means in the middle of things. Mm-hmm. So the action starts right away, uh, which makes them more epic, I guess. Um, and then all of, all, all of these stylistic devices, they really do add to the, the grandeur and, or the epicness of the poem. They, they sort of elevate the poem to that status. So how is teaching an epic going to be different than teaching a novel or teaching a short story? Well, I think regardless of genre, it's important that students understand 
what type of story they're reading going into it. Mm -hmm. Some of the artistic choices that Homer makes in his epic poem won't make a lot of sense in a novel. Um, so, for example, Homer has this this catalog of ships, which is sort of an, an infamous passage for for teachers to <laughs> try to figure out how to teach. Um, that doesn't make so much sense in, in novel format, although uh, Fitzgerald does something similar in The Great Gatsby, but he's alluding to Homer. But anyway, for students to understand what exactly the artist is trying to do, it really is helpful to understand the genre. And and that, that certainly applies with, with epics. Um, so... I think that that's something that, that is really important to explain to students from the outset of the work. But aside from that, you know, I don't think teaching epics is all that different from teaching other kinds of stories. Mm. Um, the epics of Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey really contain the two great metaphors of human life, war and the journey, respectively. Um, and in that sense, it's really easy to draw connections between Homer and the other works that follow on our curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, almost every story regardless of genre, will mirror Homer in, in, in one way or another. Um, Jane Austen's novels, for example, are in so many ways modern English odysseys. Um, and so the approach to teaching literature, regardless of genre, I don't think changes too much, uh, is what I would say. What do you enjoy uh, about teaching epics? Well, first, they're excellent. Um, the epics of Homer, Virgil, Dante, and Milton are among the greatest works ever spoken or written. Uh, and reading them with my students is delightful in and of itself. Uh, but more specifically, what I really enjoy about teaching these epics is uh, seeing how they're in conversation with each other. Uh, each poet after Homer very intentionally builds on the poet who came before him. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, in Paradise Lost, uh, John Milton makes dozens and dozens of allusions to Homer and, and to Virgil. Um, one of my favorites has to do with this character's sin in Paradise Lost. And she's this half snake, half woman creature. She's the porter to the gate of hell um, in book two. And Milton describes her in terms that echo the way that Virgil describes the Trojan horse in the Aeneid. And that's sort of perplexing. What does this monstrous creature have to do with this inanimate object, this wooden horse, right? I think when students first encounter that passage, they're sort of inclined to think that Milton is just showing off, trying to show how learned he is. And there might be some truth to that. Um, Milton was a, a notoriously proud man <laughs> and even admits to, to being proud in, in Paradise Lost. Um, but then when we investigate the matter further, when we talk it over and the students begin to think about why Milton made this specific allusion to describe the character of Sin, and they start to think about how Sin might be similar to the Trojan horse, namely that Sin isn't, uh, it, may, it may appear to be one thing, but it's actually another. Mm -hmm. And sin, if you let it into your life, just like the Trojan horse, it will destroy you. Um, that's why Milton made that allusion to yeah. Virgil. Um, and when students, when they understand that, when they draw that connection, uh, just seeing the lights sort of flash in their eyes, hearing the audible gasps of wonder and delight at Milton's <laughs> genius, those are the moments that I live for when, when teaching the epics. Talking with Brad Richardson from Ascent Classical Academy in Douglas County, Colorado, about teaching epics. You teach a, a number of great epics to your ninth graders. What, uh, which ones did you read this past year? So last year in the ninth grade, we read the epics of Homer, uh, the Iliad, and the Odyssey. We read the Aeneid by Virgil and Dante's comedy. And I also teach Paradise Lost in 10th grade. Um, and those five epics are actually the five great epics of Western civilization, as identified by um, the scholar Mortimer Adler. So have you found it beneficial to teach all of those in, in a single year? And why do you think that makes sense? Absolutely. Just for the purpose of drawing connections between the works, like I was talking about with the illusions, it helps so much to read Virgil having Homer on the mind. Mm -hmm. It helps so much to read Dante having Virgil on the mind. And it helps so much to read Milton having all of them on your mind. 
How do your students generally respond to these epics, to reading works of such great length? I think it really depends on which one. Um, I think they respond to different epics differently. Um, I think by the time we finished the Aeneid, for example, most students were ready to move on. We spent about seven or eight weeks on it this Mm. year. And really students, like most modern readers, tend to enjoy the first half of the Aeneid more, where you have the, the Dido and Carthage scenes, you have the Trojan horse scenes, the journey. And the second half of the Aeneid, which is modeled off of the Iliad, is like the conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's actually generally what I've found is that students really like the journey stories a lot more than the conflict stories. Hmm. Um, So, for example, when we read the Odyssey, I think we could have spent the entire year reading the Odyssey if it were long enough. (laughs) If if it went on for hundreds and hundreds of additional pages, the students would have had no problem with it. Um, In addition to being an extremely profound work of art, the Odyssey is perhaps the most fun uh, book that I've ever read. And I think many of my students felt the same way. Whereas the Iliad and, and the second half of the Aeneid, those stories where it's just one conflict that's taking place, that's where it's a little bit more difficult to to get students engaged all the way through. And you have to be a little bit more creative with, with how you go about approaching those works. So how do you work and perhaps adjust at times to keep that work manageable and, and more importantly, meaningful for your students? Absolutely. Uh, that's a great question. Um, with with these long works of art, um, uh, it really you really do have to sort of be be creative to to keep the students interested for you know uh, nine, ten, eleven weeks at a time in, in a single work. Um, and I think that there's a few ways that I go about doing that. Um, and the first is I actually like to fall behind in discussions a little bit. Hmm. Um, that's something that I would have never felt comfortable with my first year as a teacher. I would have felt we were way behind and yeah. we're not going to finish in time and I would have been anxious. <laughs> but falling behind actually gives you the opportunity to be more selective with what you talk about. You have all this material sort of stored up that you haven't talked about yet and then you can really choose to emphasize certain parts of the story and and de-emphasize other parts of the story mm-hmm. and you can really pick out the most compelling parts to talk about and you can avoid things that might be a little bit repetitive um and so i like falling behind a little bit just to store up a little material to always have in my back pocket to to keep the students uh interested and engaged second um when it comes to the epics i think it's really important to relate just how much they have to teach the students about their own lives um you know one complaint that i hear from students from time to time and and this applies not just to literature but to, to any discipline um, you know, what's the point of reading this story? Why do I have to learn algebra? Why do I need to know what a cell is? Right. When am I ever going to use that? Why right? do I use Latin? Exactly. <laughs> uh, that's that's a complaint that you hear from, from from students from time to time, and it's really something that's sort of in our in our culture. Mm. They hear it in TV shows and YouTube and that sort of thing. Um, and so I think it's really important to sort of counter that to 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 tell the students really intentionally um, how Homer relates to their lives. Um, you know, this is a three thousand year old uh, poem, uh, and so it's not it's not intuitive that this would this would have something to say to them about their own lives, um, and in the modern times we live in. But really, you know, Homer has so much to say about human nature. Um, he has deep and penetrating insights in, into to what it means to live a good life, and those are eternal questions. They're not just limited to one time or or one place. Um, and so, by showing the students that Homer may actually, <laughs> I think he does, understand them better than they know themselves. <laughs> That's a great way to keep them interested in in the poem. And third, as a teacher, I really think there's no substitute for being passionate about the works that you teach. Um, students will sort of naturally look up to you. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll want to make you proud. They'll want to try to impress you. And if you can really convey your passion for the works that you teach in the classroom, it, it becomes contagious. Um, 
And it's not like you can just flip a switch and you're passionate about something, right? <laughs> That's something you actually have to have to work on. Yeah. I, I've had books that I, I, I was not very passionate about that I've I've had to sort of labor through to try to teach it. But then I really, over the summer and over breaks, I really tried to find out what I was missing in, in these in these works. Mm-hmm. I think that when you don't quite get a work or if you're not quite passionate about it, I really think it says more about you than it does the book. Um, and, and so I think that that's, whenever I, whenever I come across a work like that, that's, that's a challenge for me. Why, why don't I get this? What's wrong with me? What am I missing? And so I really do try to cultivate passion for the works that I teach. Uh, you ran down earlier the, the list of the epics that you read in the course of a year. Do, do you tend to find themes or, or questions that are common among all of those works? Absolutely. Um, um, the epics are in conversation with each other, and, and they're in conversation with uh, with each other about some of the same questions. Um, so these stories are all interested in what it means to be human, what it means to live a good life, uh, the dangers of being ruled by one's passions and emotions, uh, whether love or rage, uh, how to cultivate wisdom, what it means to be great, uh, what it means to be a hero. Uh, those are all all questions that th- these, these uh, poems are interested in. Let's flip that around. Where do you see these epics differ from each other? Where do you draw the distinctions between these works? Well, that's a great question. I think I think the most obvious distinction is between the pagan and the Christian poems. So you have Homer and Virgil on the pagan side, and you have Dante and Milton on the Christian side, and that that will certainly influence how they answer some of these these common questions that they have. But I think one of the most compelling ways to look at the differences in these poems is actually through closely examining their similarities. Um, so, for example, in the first half of the Aeneid, the Aeneid is the first half is modeled off of the Odyssey, and so Aeneas and Odysseus do many of the same things. They go to many of the same places. They both have an encounter with with the Cyclops. They um, they're on sort of the same journey. But by examining how Aeneas responds to those obstacles and how his response differs from Odysseus's response, you can really see some differences start to emerge, and you can understand what Virgil's argument might be, hmm. what the purpose of his poem is, what he's trying to say about Aeneas. As, uh, as a hero and whether he surpasses uh, the heroism of Odysseus, that's where I think you really start to see some of those compelling differences is, is in a close comparison of their similarities. You mentioned a few specific characters there. What, are there other characters from these works that tend to generate the greatest amount of conversation or disagreement or debate among your students? Odysseus. Yeah. It's not even close. <laughs> uh, many students, uh, they delight in Odysseus's wisdom and his cunning, but others see him as manipulative, deceitful, essentially just a huge liar. Um, and Odysseus, he is this polarizing character. Um, the epithet that Homer uses to describe him is the man of twists and turns. Mm. And, and so that tells us a lot about Odysseus's character right there. He loves going on twisting and turning adventures. Uh, he's really hard to pin down intellectually because he's always twisting and turning situations over in his mind and formulating plans and strategies. But he's also twisting and turning in sort of a, a manipulative way. Um, and so we had just a ton of great debates in class about Odysseus. Um, uh, I think the students who were, were critical of his character um, felt very vindicated hmm. in the spring semester when we read Virgil and Dante, because <laughs> Virgil portrays Odysseus as, as this villainous, the worst of the Greeks. Um, there's, you know, he's the mastermind of this impious uh, Trojan horse plot. And when Troy is burning, Odysseus is piling up his loot and his treasure while the women are being enslaved. And Odysseus is just this, this ultimate villain for Virgil. And then Dante, who didn't read Homer and so um, is building off of Virgil here, actually places Odysseus um, very, very deep in hell uh, among the false counselors. So I think, I think the critics got the last <laughs> laugh in our class. 
is there a particular character from these works that you hold dear or you perhaps want or wish your students to learn from as you are discussing these these works? It might sound funny based off of my previous answer, but yeah, Odysseus is the one that I would choose, actually. Um, on his journey, Odysseus will only make it home safely if he controls his emotions, if he resists temptation, if he perseveres in the face of hardship, and if he uses his wisdom to overcome obstacles. And those are such valuable lessons for, for anyone, but particularly uh, high school students to learn, I think. Um, and, and Odysseus, he's, he's sort of destined for, for, for pain, hmm. um, destined for adversity and, and, and suffering. But despite that, Odysseus still finds delight in, in the journey, in the struggle of life. He even turns down immortality and a life of ease um, several times offered to him by various goddesses or princesses. Um, I think teaching students to appreciate the struggle of life, to appreciate um, perseverance and, and to delight in life even when it's difficult, those are, I think, some of the most valuable lessons they can learn from, this, from, from my classes. Brad Richardson with us, Ascent Classical Academy, talking about teaching epics. If your students are looking back five or ten years from the time that they are experiencing these epics with you, what do you want them to remember? What are those big, bright lines you want them to, to still have in their mind years from now? Yeah, I hope my students are still thinking about the epics five, ten years from now. I really do. Um, you know, I think that some of the goals... Um, some of the things I'm trying to teach my students, they don't, they don't really differ from class to class too much, whether mm-hmm. we're, we're teaching epics or we're teaching Shakespeare. Um, first and foremost, I just want my students to have um, cultivated wisdom and virtue. Um, and the epics provide so many opportunities um, to do that. It, it's really hard not to be, become more courageous after reading the Iliad mm-hmm. and, and seeing all these scenes of battle. It's hard not to become wiser after reading the Odyssey and, and seeing how Odysseus you know, plans and maneuvers around the various obstacles he encounters. It's hard not to become more virtuous in general after reading uh, the comedy. Uh, and so I think that that's probably the main goal, and that's, that's really sort of the goal of a classical education also. So I, I don't think my class and, and the overall uh, goal of the school differ too much in that regard. There's one more thing, though. I think I really want my students to fall in love with reading, to fall in love with these stories. Um, I want them to become passionate readers. Uh, and whenever a student tells me that he or she learned to love reading in my class, I really consider that as the highest compliment that I can receive as a teacher. Um, because education and reading, it's not just something you do in high school and college and then you're right. done with it. It's a lifelong endeavor. Um, it's a response to what Alan Bloom called a felt need. And so I hope after my class, my students feel a need uh, to keep reading and learning the rest of their lives. Brad Richardson with us, Ascent Classical Academy in Douglas County, Colorado and talking about teaching epics. Brad, thank you so much for joining us here on the Hillsdale College Classical Education Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm Scott Bertram. We invite you to like us on Facebook. Search for Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education. You also can follow us on Instagram at Hillsdale underscore K-12. Hillsdale underscore K-12 on Instagram. Thank you for listening to the Hillsdale College Classical Education Podcast. Podcast.